1: warm welcome to a very cold London for this the first motorsport magazine podcast of 2013 and if you're joining us for the first time thank you very much for giving us the benefit of the doubt and I know you're going to enjoy it especially because today we have a rather special guest a man who is quite literally a part of British motor racing history Dive into any motor racing history book Look under A for Atwood And there he will be Yes, Richard Atwood is with us Le Mans winner, of course, in 1970 In the uh, fearsome Porsche 917 And more recently, winner of the Glover Trophy Formula One race at the Goodwood Revival This man just never stops Quite incredible And we'll be with Richard in just a moment First of all, uh, let me tell you though about our subscription offer. And this month we are offering a greased lightning ultimate valeting kit. I will repeat that, a greased lightning ultimate valeting kit. And that comes with every 12 or 24 month subscription. To take up this offer, simply go to motorsportmagazine.com forward slash GL13 Or call us on 0207 349 8472 and quote GL13. I hope hope you're all still with that one. I'll repeat it at the end anyway. Okay. Um, Since we last were with you, we have won an award. Yes, we have. Incredible. Uh, We've won a thing called the New Media Award, which was presented to us by the Guild of Motoring Writers. So we are now an, an award-winning podcast. OK. Um, which is uh, quite apt, really, because Richard Atwood is also an award winner. He won a Guild of Motoring Writers Award way back in 1963. It was called the Grovewood Award. And it was presented to him for being Britain's most promising young driver. How about that? Can you remember that, Richard?
2: Richard? Yes, I do. Um, it was um, quite an accolade, really, and I suppose it was a start of what's now become the Autosport BRDC or whoever else in the Vaughan McLaren Award. But um, <coughs> it was really inaugurated by John Webb, who was the man who pushed things a lot uh, along in those days, and, and it was him, really. And the reception was at the Grosvenor House Hotel in one of the basement areas because it's quite a small affair, and uh, we had to take the car down as well. And uh, that was an exciting journey just on its own But anyway, that's another story <laughs> uh, But uh, yeah, it started there for, I mean, that really put me on the map, I suppose In a way, for, brought recognition, I suppose uh, To me, which is great
1: Absolutely I mean, most promising young driver That's a lot to live up to, isn't it? Well, may- maybe I didn't live up to it <laughs> Well, I don't know, actually I was I was looking at your career last night And thinking about it driving up to London this morning I mean... Apart from being an incredibly long career um, and being a, being a survivor, which, you know, is, is quite something, having raced through the 60s, um, you, you, your, the breadth of your uh, achievements is, is interesting. You know, it wasn't just single-seaters or just sports cars. Did you have a sort of a particular goal in mind?
2: Well, no, not really. I mean, uh, in those days, contracts were fairly sort of um, liberal and you couldn't uh, break them, but you could have a Formula One deal maybe, and then you could do sports cars as well, and uh, saloon car races. So, I mean, we took everything we could, really. I mean, uh, you never know when you're going to have a breakthrough in a car that happens to be dominant. So, you know, uh, we accepted virtually anything that was thrown at us, which makes us a little bit uh, not particularly particular, if you like, but um, it didn't matter, you know, as long as you got into a reasonable car, that was the idea of the game.
1: I should have mentioned right at the beginning that uh, Nigel Roebuck is with us, of course, as ever, our veteran Grand Prix correspondent, who's on just... Gave up, I, like to, I like to call him a veteran. Um, and also Ed Foster, of course, who is the producer of our podcast uh, here at Motorsport Magazine. Um, before we go round the table, Richard, um, I just thought I'd mention that I have with me the front cover of next month's Motorsport Magazine, and it features... Uh, the Porsche 917, there it is in Gulf colours.
2: Yes, that, that's the car that we finished uh, second in in 1971, number 19. That's the golf car owned by the man who owns all the golf stuff, Roald Guerta.
1: That's right, lucky man. We'll talk to you a bit about the 917 um, a bit later on. Actually, why don't we do that now? Because I know Nigel likes talking about 917s. Um,
3: I well, I went up the Goodwood Hill with Richard, and ah. you just before you just before you parted with the with right. the car.
2: I, I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, good, yeah great. Yeah. <laughs> you, but you did. That's great. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: And yeah that, I, I, that remember, I remember talking to you about it, and you were saying, I don't think you. Maybe you did say, in a way, you looked upon the car as your pension, but. Uh, but, it, um, I mean, in many ways, I mean, it, that was surely the best investment you ever made, wasn't it?
2: Uh, well, it was, and I, I didn't think that it wouldn't be. I thought it would go the way it did, but I didn't expect it to go as well as it did, I suppose, so I was underestimated that. But it, it was, and I, it was an investment. I mean, a rather, a, you would think that I did it for the love of the car. I mean, yes, it's lovely to have it, of course, and I did use it. But um, it, it worked out better than I thought. But I never paid into a pension fund. I, I enjoyed the money I had. Um, but when I found that, but I'd done it before with other cars. So the first car I bought was a D-Type Jag in 66. So I had already done that. So I thought, hmm, maybe that's, that's the way to go. So uh, that's,
3: that's where the nine or 7 came from. Well, I mean, you bought the car from, from Brian, didn't you, Brian Redman? Didn't you?
0: Yes, I, I did. Remember? I yeah. did
2: um, he, uh, how he got to hear about it. I don't know, but it was um, had been repaired by a German garage called Bernd Bucher. and uh, uh, And he uh, when I, as soon as I heard he'd bought it because I didn't know anything about the car. Um, I did say it to Brian because I uh, Half-heartedly been looking for one uh, that if he ever came to sell it could I have first refusal and uh, true to his word he, d- he did keep to that and uh, that's how I acquired it four years later
3: It's, um, it's interesting that the, the 917 sort of uh, donated to your pension fund when I think the first time you raced one at Le Mans in 69 you, you hated it and when it did finally break you couldn't wait to get out and <laughs> well, I, think, I think everyone hated <laughs> in the 69 well, I think <laughs> the story
2: has been recounted before but um, it was a very underdeveloped car Uh, but Ferdinand Pieck was the man who made it happen Uh, and at the time of course the 908 could win pretty much everything anyway in long tail or short tail form um, spider so the drivers didn't weren't that keen on trying a brand new car and um, it gathered a reputation fairly early on and the first race it went to was at Spa of all horrific places, if you like, where um, Gerhard Mitter and Udo Schutz were down to drive it and they did and they qualified and everything went quite reasonably. Um, I think they were holding the pace back because it was a fearsome beast. Um, But then uh, I only spoke to Udo about this about four years ago when I met him at the Solitude Revival and um, he, I, I asked Udo because uh, <laughs> he was lying in his bedroom, uh, hotel bedroom on Sunday morning and he could hear the hiss of the tires going past his bedroom window wh- and he realized of course that that meant it was raining and everything had been done in the dry so far. And um, but he, fortunately for him, he wasn't down to start the race, Gerhard was. And of course he did half a lap and the engine mysteriously broke and uh, I asked Udo if that might have been a deliberate move and he thought it possibly was.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he didn't run out of fuel on the first lap he? no he,
2: that would have been an easy out so he had to create his own I think um, and it was, so that really I suppose I mean he's a professional driver I mean he was used to everything and uh, driven hill climb cars and won championships and everything else in flimsy cars so he wasn't uh, holding back on bravery so uh, if he was doing something like that it was for a, a, a very, uh, very good reason
3: well, in fact, Gardner and Piper drove it at the Nürburgring, didn't they?
2: Well, yes, I mean, the 908 around uh, the Nürburgring would be the car to have anyway. Yeah. And so why would we yeah. want to jeopardise our chances of having a chance of winning the race in something that wasn't uh, developed? So we, there wasn't a driver's strike, but it amounted to probably that. And the factory couldn't persuade any of us to go into the 917. Um, we weren't that brave, I think. And so um, they got to Innocence, I suppose, to uh, come and drive it. And uh, there was a phone call, well, David recounts the story very well, but he was phoned um, by uh, Rico Steinerman, I think. And um, of course, money was being bandied about because obviously they were gonna pay uh, the factory rates or more because no one would drive it <laughs> as, as an enticement. <laughs> And uh, so David of course, yes. First answer was yes, (laughs) didn't matter about the car, yes. And uh, the phone went down and then 10 minutes later they rang back and said, oh, do you happen to know someone else who could drive with you? (laughs) And uh, so he got Frank Gardner along, of course, who was in similar vein of thought of money. And uh, they actually did a really good job. But uh, on in that race, it wasn't the long-tail version. It was a short-tail version, which was not the same problem that the long-tail was. Um, but, of course, it was a much more difficult track. So they they earned their money. In fact, I think they, they had a bonus at the end of the race as well because they finished. It was the first race they finished. And I think they finished seventh. Dave said
3: seventh. I got yeah, I think they did. Ninth, was it? Yeah. 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 But Frank always said that and the... Um, Open version of the F3L were the two most terrifying cars he ever he ever drove.
2: Yes, well the open F3L didn't race, did it? I don't yeah, think he did. Yeah, he drove it. He did. Drive he did. It. he yeah. raced certainly,
3: yeah. it certainly raced at the BOAC mm. in '69. Right. I, um, I don't know if I was But there. You remember it. But it had front and back wings on quite sort of the tall uh, <laughs> struts. Were the, were the thing at the time. Yes. And Frank said, "You know, the, the thing is, they weren't working in harmony. Those two, those two wings. And uh, but, you know, because mo- the, the rear one certainly wa- was was movable. Yes. Um, and he, but he said that after the 917, he thought he would never drive anything like that again. And then and the F3 helped <laughs> all that uh, back.
2: enough to drive another one? <laughs>
3: but ac- actually, Richard, just while I think of it, the thing, I, something I've never forgotten, was the early laps of Le Mans when Stommelin was leading. And as Frank always said, "Yeah, well, I'm you know, doing his bit for the fatherland." Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but the overhead camera, I remember, uh, when he was going down Mulsanne, and the car was literally going from one side of the track to the other the whole time. It was it was weaving that badly, and he was having to bring it back and then correct literally its yes. progress all the way down Mulsanne. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, the uh, he would have been driving as fast as it would go. I think he was that sort of guy, and. Uh, you know he's not around now, um, but uh, it, it was it was quite horrendous. It's difficult to explain to people, and they think that we. I often think that they don't believe what we're saying because it was that bad. Because aerodynamically, it was literally coming off the ground, and uh, we had a problem with the um, the Dunlop tires in that race, and they they started to chunk. Fortunately, uh, so we had to reduce speed by. 10 or 15 miles an hour, which actually made it uh, a lot easier, but it was still extremely difficult. Uh, It was a a totally undeveloped car. The first time, to tell you how prepared I was, the first time I I drove the 917, I never tested it, was to qualify for Le Mans. And uh, I learnt about six years ago from Vic Elford that he actually nominated me for the car I could have throttled him (laughs) am I a hero? no I'm not a hero
1: (laughs) I I think just uh, for the benefit of uh, those people listening who are not absolutely uh, sure why we're discussing the Porsche 917 uh, the fact is it's one of the The most talked about racing cars ever, I I would suggest, really. Uh, Well, it's one of the great iconic racing cars, isn't it? Well, it it is. Full Uh, stop. Of course, and um, a spectacular looking car, an extremely quick car, and a very, very difficult car to drive at the beginning. Um, But Richard, you won Le Mans. Uh, You had mumps, is that right?
2: Yeah I didn't know that, Um, (laughs) uh, Le Mans is um, a race of, uh, it's uh, very fatiguing uh, for mental as well as physical and um, at the end of the race uh, I was so desperately tired and I couldn't really work out how bad I was but of course it was uh, Porsche's first win so there had to be a big celebration and I can't even remember where that was but I... I, Uh, I went to the beginning of the reception and the dinner, but I I just could not stay awake and I had to leave. I just uh, was wiped out. And of course, only when I got home to see my doctor, because I was still in a similar state. I, I learned that I'd, I'd had mumps But the one thing that had affected me during the race uh, is that I couldn't uh, it happened me in my throat area not blow down So um, I wasn't in any great pain, but I couldn't eat anything my taste buds as soon as I went had anything of any taste It went straight to my my glands here and I couldn't eat anything The only thing I could really have was milk I uh, love cornflakes but I couldn't have those because there was a, a good taste of those salty tastes so I'd, I hardly ate anything so that was another thing that was sort of debilita- debilitating
3: and um, making me very... And, and, uh, and there were only two drivers in those days that's the other well, thing.
2: I, well, I always tend to say that the modern drivers are a bit of you know they're poofs really I mean, <laughs> <laughs> because they have three or four. But uh, the cars the cars were different, and uh, it uh, we didn't have the G-force, of course. So um, there's uh, there's uh, there's, a, there's a reason for that. And uh, of course now the drivers they drive flat out. I mean, I went with Audi some years ago, and fortunately. I have good connections with them because I've done some work with them in the past, and um, and I've been several times. So the first time I went, I couldn't get my head around the fact that every session was a Grand Prix yeah. for the driver, and they're all competing for their next drive. And the cars are now bulletproof, which of course our cars were not. And the driver's involvement with the car now was well, sorry, in you know with an nine or seven cars like that, you had to manage the car because if you went flat out, it would break. So that was a big driver input. And um, John Y used to uh, tame the drivers, if you like, by giving them a lap time to stick to. And he was pretty strict on that. And he was right, because the cars had to last for 24 hours. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and it's almost
1: unrecognizable, really, isn't it? The, the long distance racing of, of your day and the long distance racing of today. I mean, it's a sprint now.
2: Oh, it's totally different, totally different, yeah. Totally different. yeah. Um, the world's different, uh, the cars are different, the massive downforce now, I mean, the 917 would not be a problem at all if we could have worked out underbody or a, a, a little flipper or wing or two, would have solved most of the wrong, because with the 917 and the long tail, there were two flippers at the back, and they were scientifically very cleverly designed when you went round a right-hand bend, the... Uh, right side one would come up to try and hold the back down there, and the left one went went level to not to not give lift because it got enough roll on it. So it was, had been all thought out thought out with uh, movable wings, and that was the other issue when we got to scrutineering. Uh, the ACO said uh, you're not allowed uh, movable. Uh, aerodynamic devices, or I don't know what they call them then and uh, So the the factory said but the car's been designed like that. That's how it's going to work. Well, actually it didn't work Uh, (laughs) but uh, It probably wouldn't have made any difference if uh, they'd been fixed to be honest Um, But uh, the the factory that the engineers had designed all these things to perfection not and uh, uh, and of course uh, they thought the car would literally fly off the road, which it was doing, if they were if they weren't made movable, yeah, or take it off. Uh, I think they'd already been made to fix them. But um, so Porsche management went to all the entrants of Porsche cars, and it's not not half the grid, but not far off. And they said, right, well, if you don't allow our car to run, well, we're going to pull all the portions out. They couldn't have done that, probably anyway. <laughs> it was a bluff, and they then were yeah. allowed to do that.
1: Well, I think it's quite a jolly good thing the ACO got their comeuppance, in my view. Um,
3: <laughs> Richard, just while I think about it, just uh, going back to the to the win in in seventy, in didn't am I misremembering this, or didn't you and Hammond opt to run the four point five? engine rather than the five-litre
2: well um, I don't because in 69 with the long tail where it wasn't apparently it wasn't meant to last more than six hours I think so Vic says I I didn't know that because he was very involved with the 917 and I was not Um, and he um, uh, you know we actually went 21 hours uh, until the gearbox started cracking and then the the clutch and stopped working so the gearbox broke and uh, you know it wasn't meant to have gone that long and I whether they saw some disappointment in uh, me getting out of the car it, it wasn't disappointment at all I was absolutely delighted to get out of that car I was drained completely <laughs> although the following year I was as well um, but it was uh, the stress to drive the car was horrendous and after my first we did a double session to start he and Vic started I did a double session and uh, After that session I was completely deaf yeah. for because the exhaust was under the door two of the were under the door two out of the back Amazing. and uh, And so I packed my helmet after that with them. but I had a headache for the rest of the race um, and there was something else that was wrong. Um, oh, yes, my neck with the forces of the engine They were so fast, I never driven things so fast as that. I was start having to, to, to Rest my head on the back bulkhead for my neck muscles. That's after the first two hours So you can sell I, I would just wanted to leave that car. Now they the factory might have taken that as being disappointment Absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I was rung in, um, about March time, uh, February time in 1970 and I was asked what configuration of car I would like and, um, uh, so I stipulated that, uh, I, th- the short tail had been proved by then, so I want a short tail, I want the small engine, I don't want to have the gearbox breaking out, and I want a chance of finishing the race, but by uh, June time of the race, uh, the new engine, the 5 litre, or 4.9, had been, was a was a, a stonker, it was fantastic. And so we get to Le Mans, with a, our small engine, and we are way down the grid, and and I've th- I, I w- w- I just realised after qualifying that we haven't got a chance, and we are literally, I don't know, 13th, 14th or 15th on the grid, so we've got to wait for a, a dozen cars or more to have a problem before we got a chance to get ahead. Um, But it was, I remember watching the start of that race and it was like a Grand Prix. Everybody had a chance to win with a five liter, whether it was a five on two or nine on seven. And that really laid the foundations of the race.
1: I must say they, they were great days. <laughs> you know, just thinking back, I mean, those cars were so spectacular. Well,
2: it, well, of course, it's all been um, it's still on film, isn't it, with the Steve McQueen job? And of course, it was um, uh, the story was around the the Gulf cars, the John mark cars, and uh, and the, they were going to win, weren't they? I mean, so why not? Let's let's do a film about it. And of course, none of their cars lasted very long at all.
1: Yeah. Okay, well, I think, we, I think we should move on, okay. um, but uh, finally, on the subject of those wonderful golf uh, sports cars, next month's Motorsport Magazine, keep a lookout for it. They're all on the front cover. It's very beautiful. Okay. Um, Single-seaters, which is what I always associate you with, probably because I used to watch you race at Goodwood when I was a boy. When you were called Dickie Atwood, then weren't you? when? When did you um, change your? When did this occur? Well, I well commentators really. always called you. Yeah. Well, they did, Dickie, and I think yes. it was
2: the, the era that we're in modern era. Even then, probably the modern era of uh, familiarity, really. Mm. And uh, there are there are people today still who go to friends of mine and uh, who are in motorsport. They followed it, but they don't know me. And they said, oh, yeah, you, you mean Dickie Atwood? And, and, and my friends said, oh, don't call him that. <laughs> well, I had so to if somebody says that, I mean, I, I then know they don't know me at all. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. But it is true, though, isn't it? I
1: mean, I used to watch you, you know, year after year after year, and you were always called Dickie Atwood. Anyway, now it's Richard Atwood. No, but again, those commentators will not have known me. I, no, I, no, I, 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 I remember right.
3: being at a party once and chatting to a bloke who reckoned he knew this british racing driver extremely well jimmy hunt he called him (laughs) all evening (laughs) (laughs) did you ever ever hear anybody else ever call james other than no No. sorry anyway Uh,
2: just a little similar (laughs) philip there was that um, with jim clark to me jim clark was jim clark but his close personal friends it, it was jimmy clark But I see all the scribes, a lot of the scribes there, they call Jimmy Clarke, it's actually quite annoying. And he was annoyed by people who didn't know him well. And uh, I think in
3: part that comes, Richard, from, I mean, for instance, one of Jimmy's closest, I've said he just said it then, was, was Jabby Cronbach. Yeah. And Jabby always talked, always said Jimmy, yes. Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. So it's sort of well, gone into if, my is head. Is that how it gets picked know, up, there, Very much, it? yes, yeah. I, absolutely, yeah.
1: Well, uh, it's, it's one of, the, it's the price of fame. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I am not Bob either, by the way. <laughs> um, okay, uh, but, but let's, let's just think, cause, uh, your first year in Formula Junior, you came second in Monte Carlo. And then in 63, you won it. Um, I mean, apart from the fact that you obviously had a huge amount of talent, did, did, was it a circuit that suited you particularly because you had to be so precise and so neat? And uh,
2: well It seems that way. I didn't really know that uh, until I was on a circuit like that. But... Um, in fact, in '62, I probably finished second in the heat. I, I wasn't in the final because my engine, the the car broke. But um, um, I just like that sort of circuit, I suppose. And uh, we have uh, we have uh, we adapt to what we um, uh, our nature, I suppose. And um, I like the proximity of uh, precision. Yes, I did. Um, the chicane of Good was another one, you know, t- uh, where they we know in period they were they were brick, they were solid. Um, but to save a, a little bit there, it just might be, a, you know, a second, uh, not a second, fractions of a second to uh, to go towards that. But um, yeah. I mean, I've f- gone quicker on other circuits, so I, I don't know. But Monte Carlo, probably, yes, I have an, an affinity with, but it happened that I got drives there where I didn't get drives anywhere else because people sort of thought exactly the same as you. So, um, and in '69, when I drove for Lotus, Colin Chapman, because Jochen Rinter got injured with his stupid wings falling off and um you know he he thought about he thought exactly the same so
3: it's, it's interesting you say that. I mean the with these circuits that needed such precision I mean Le Mans was so totally different did you like Le Mans as a circuit or was it just more the event that was uh, the big
2: actually Le Mans, I found a fantastic circuit um they had huge corners and um you know, White House, or the corners, that some of them are not there, but some of them still are there. And, <coughs> you know, the Dunlop Bridge was another f- great uh, corner that could be taken flat. Um, uh, but of course, you, you know, coming out of White House, if you are a little bit faster coming out of there, because th- you took that well, then Dunlop Curve ended up being a little bit faster, you know, and, and he had to use all the road to do it flat. And um, the one year Paul Frere was timing cars from, I think, before White House. Anyway, he was on somewhere quite high up and he could see. And he timed every car from the beginning of White House, I think, right down to the S's or where they disappeared. And uh, our, the, car, the car, it was a test day. And in the, it was in the Ford, the Coupe Ford GT40. And uh, our car was the fastest car. So, so yeah, yes, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, I love Le Mans. What was the other one? That was um,
1: Indianapolis. Always strikes me as being a pretty fantastic. Well,
2: approach. you're slowing down for that quite a lot, aren't you? You are, but the <clears throat> approach is f- the approach was a little bit on the curve because the cars were quite yeah. loose, and so you make take that curve before you get there. Is that? first part of Indianapolis I wouldn't know um, but there's that kink there the right kink which is can't remember if that was flat. it probably wasn't big till so you're still trying to sort out that get that speed down as you're approaching Indianapolis and that was another huge uh, skill factor came in to get it as fast as possible break as late as possible or gently breaking and then firmly breaking it was uh, it was a it was a great track. Um, Le Mans was and not, changing not down
1: at the same time, of course. Oh,
2: yeah, but that's all part of the game. Isn't it? I mean, uh well, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, not, yeah, but, not but it, wasn't, day, it, it so. wasn't
1: just <laughs> flicking a paddle, though, was it? Ah, you know? oh, well, yeah,
3: that okay. you're, yeah,
2: you're talking my favor again.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's right. interesting, though. I mean, it, it could it could hardly be more. Unlike Monte Carlo, I mean, two circuits. You both you've just said that you know, you love both of them, and yet they could hardly be more different.
2: Yes, yeah, my my ultimately all time favourite in period was the circuit uh, Clermont Ferrand, uh, built around the, the the a mountain and uh, the number of corners and curves and I made a couple of good you know fast laps on and um, you, you know that was. It com- combined everything a bit of Nürburgring bit of every circuit you can think of there was a combination of corner in that circuit It, w- it was fabulous it really I, yeah, was.
3: I've, I've heard quite a few people say they actually preferred on to the ring mm. uh, You know in, in many ways.
2: Yes, I, I think it was probably a, a forgotten circuit in a way They did yeah, have Grand Prix true. there but unfortunately yes. I missed
3: the Grand Prix. I, yeah. I should have done there but um, Actually, just going back to Monaco, the first two races, the first two Grand Prix that I ever went to in Monaco was 68
0: and 69. Oh, well, you so, went to a Good so years, <laughs> Well I
3: Yeah, yeah, but, I mean, you were how far? A couple of seconds behind Graham in 68? <coughs> I was, but
2: um, when I drove in 69, the Lotus 49, I realised I'd been completely wasting my time because uh, the Lotus 49 was so much, well, the DfE. <coughs> was a proper race engine The four valves was an uh, and up-and-go light, powerful, torquey as well. Torque was good, although they say it wasn't but it was if you kept it up there it was fine <coughs> and of course the V12 BRM was a two-valve and a sports car engine not meant to be a on because the H16 had failed so they were they were behind and they put that engine in just to sort of keep the whole thing going. So Sounded lovely. <laughs> yeah, 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 I mean a, a V12 is fantastic. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I didn't realize how, what a, um, you know, what a um, how difficult it was until I drove the following year and then I went straight away, so I got like, like it's rather like driving a thoroughbred horse or a, an ordinary horse, you know, one was, one was purpose built.
1: Do you, do, Richard? Do you put down um, uh, th- your involvement with BRM, which is possibly the best-known part of your single-seater career? I would suggest. Uh, would you say yes was the BRM days or yeah, yeah Formula One? I yes. mean, do you yes. feel do you feel that 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 actually, with hindsight, held you back because there was Lu- the Louis Stanley factor, there was um, the. Cu-
2: well, I. Funny enough, I uh, when I landed at um, Monte Carlo for the '68 race, um, the funny the first person I saw, I think I saw him at the airport. was Louis Stanley, and he said, "Oh, afterwards he says, uh, "Who are you here?" <laughs> I said, "Well, <laughs> I think I'm driving one of your cars," and uh, and he um, <laughs> obviously objected to this because he obviously thought I wasn't good enough. So. Um, so, so he actually changed the entries um, and they changed the, the... So I wasn't entered ultimately under a factory... Uh, entry, I was under the Regmont L oh, Racing Entry and the race car number was not a low number, it was number fifteen. And he'd bothered to to change all that because he thought it was the BRM were going to be misrepresented.
3: Uh, Richard, who if if Big Lou was sort of ignorant of the fact you were driving in front of absolutely <laughs> yeah. but who who had hired you? Was it Tony um, Rudd?
2: Well, of course, my expense had been um, killed in Indianapolis uh, qualifying, which was probably... A, I don't know when that... must have been very close, wasn't it? Well, it
3: was the 7th of May. It was, a, it was exactly a, a, a month after Clark's death. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, so it must have been, yeah. Two, it, weeks two weeks Two weeks before Monaco. Oh, yeah. I see.
2: It was that far. Well, the, I think it took BRM a long time to find out who they should have driving their car. And Raymond Mays was very pro me, and I'd... Um,
0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com 64
2: but uh, i hadn't done very much for them so it was a bit of a waste of time um so but i'd always been on the books type of thing and uh, they said well why you know he pushed for me to have another chance and um so that's how it happened but it must have been towards the end and um, how much Tony Rudd was involved I don't really know Um, but uh, I wouldn't know how that came about but anyway I was parachuted in on the I think I've heard about it on the either the Monday or the Tuesday and I landed on the Wednesday I think uh, for the race and um, I hadn't sat in the car or anything so had to start from square one And I worked with um, Alan Chalice yeah. And uh, Dobbin who was a yeah. great guy And um, it, we sorted the car out exactly how I wanted it And it, I wanted it very soft And um, roll and low tyre pressures Probably lower than ever been run before And uh, you know But that was the way the car wanted to be I thought And um, you know it worked out okay but, but Graham was very upset after the end of that race Because he wanted pole And the win and the varsity lap and he was absolutely savage with me i, I could tell the irate. Uh, you know he was really irate within himself because he would only have to push a little bit more to to get the lap record but he didn't he thought he'd done
3: enough but it was an extraordinary race i mean i, I think as far as i remember by sort of 30 laps uh, well there were there were five cars left yeah yes and three of them not in great running order <laughs> well, or uh, any, so were they? <laughs> but I mean, they, they denny home i remember they were they, they he had a endless pit stop and they, they was they, they obviously didn't change the engine but it was pretty fundamental and ordinary they would just have retired the car Yeah. but thought well you know, well, if, if you, you finish, finish you're going to get yeah, points
2: exactly yeah. and, that, and that's, that thought still goes on today doesn't yeah. it well it has done in yeah. recent times but yeah. uh, yes it was uh, again a race of attrition which I seem to end up getting results by I suppose but uh, I remember on the first lap I think I don't know if, uh, if Jackie Oliver was out on the first I did something on the first corner I think and, uh, and then coming through the tunnel um, uh, Bruce McLaren lost it coming th- uh, exit of the tunnel and uh, he was just in front of me and I didn't know which way to go and it, I mean the race could have ended there as well for me just happened to guess the right way and uh, as he was hitting the barrier there I went through that way um, 30s had a half shaft go or something like that and then pedro was trying to keep up pedro hit the wall in front of me oh. actually it, it was i was watching the uh, station happen yeah it did he yeah, yeah. oh,
3: it? Uh, it was coming out of mirabeau yeah, yeah coming down to the happen yeah yeah yeah,
2: yeah. and uh Rint also had a biff didn't he um but uh, yeah i don't know why but it did uh, but i'll tell you the one thing that they always used to do before the the race at monte carlo the 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 just before the race or in the morning i think they used to sweep the circuit and that created a more dust than it would have done if they hadn't done it <laughs> and that's what caught bruce out right
3: yeah it did it's yeah. interesting it was just uh, the grip wasn't there what was how did you get on with uh with pedro oh pedro i,
2: I get on with i think most people and pedro was uh He was, he's quite an introvert, quiet guy, but uh, he was great fun. We had a lot of fun. I I didn't, uh, I got on really well with him. Um, He was, uh, his stamina, his constitution was enormous. And he became, if you think about Pedro's career, it it was a long one. And for a lot of the early years, he didn't do a, a great success, I don't think. And but when he joined the, the the Porsche team, and maybe a little bit before, he was starting to drive really really fantastically, and in the end he was the best Porsche
3: driver. He he was one of the. He just seemed to me to get better and better and yeah. better. Yeah. And We're as you say, I think I think he was very much in the better. shadow of his of his brother yeah. when, when when Ricardo was alive. Because Ricardo was the sort of the great natural talent, and and Pedro at that stage, I think, was fairly unsure whether he wanted to be a, a full time driver. Anyway, but but boy, you know, once he was into it, he was he really Ooh. was as committed as as anybody would ever see, wasn't yeah.
1: he? Just so everybody's absolutely clear, we're talking about Pedro Rodriguez, and um, no, that's okay. No, I just think we have to make these things clear. Um, Richard, um, do, do you? While all this was going on, uh, it was highly, highly dangerous. Uh, We've already mentioned a couple of people who lost their lives. Were you ever tempted to call it a day?
2: Well, you know, when you're in a certain era, um, these things become an acceptable part of the way of life that you're doing. And um, it was always there. and there were certain circuits that I used to put my hands together and look up a little bit, and and when I left there, and wa- that one was Spa, and the other was the ring. because we were aware of the danger. Of course we were. I mean, if you made a mistake and went off off road, uh, there, <laughs> there was no safety at all. It was either a bank or a ditch or a tree or a bridge or a house or a telegraph pole which I managed to hit its Spa as well. And I mean, I could easily have been another st- statistic. Um, so, but uh, we, we weren't brave. I don't think we were brave. I don't think we were foolhardy. Um, it's just that, um, well, maybe it was a little bit brave, I don't know, to, to go through. You know, 160 mile an corner, um, You know, with the, within a very fine margin.
3: Yeah, I, I would say know. it
1: shows a slight lack of imagination. Quite. <laughs> well. it's, it's
3: it's the it's the kink. It's some of the master kink, yeah. Richard. Every time I go, spa, yeah. every I go to Spa, every year I go to Spa. Every year I drive around the old circuit, mm. and every year I just think, whatever was it like mm. approaching the kink downhill?
2: It, yeah, it was part of the job. Uh, it was something for you had time to get to get up to speed to um but then you know you'd get qualifying and everything absolutely perfect and then race morning raining so all that goes out the window so you gotta start again and um you know it's uh your experience is a, is a great thing and um the more you got the more sensible you became probably
3: talking about the the nurberg ring there when you started racing Fords, didn't you race a cobra at the nurberg ring at some point because yeah. that must have been a Serious handful.
2: Yes, it was. The Cobra was the first. Uh, no, uh, was the second race I did at the I'd been with um, with David Hobbs's Mechamatic um, Elite yeah. for the first year, but it uh, the, the f- uh, normally the car was extremely reliable. The gearbox was really good, but in fact it broke, and I don't know if I actually raced. I think I qualified, so I'd learnt the track a little bit, but I didn't really know it. And the second year was with the Cobra, and um, I. I, through the Lola GT program, I was taken and brought through onto the GT40 program. And so um, I was, uh, I suppose, a continuation, if you like. And of course it was uh, through Lola, Eric Broadley, I'm sure. Um, so I was part of that team. But so, and and um, the GT40s weren't, actually I think one of the cars did go, didn't it? But I think they only had one car there. But because I was just, uh, contracted to Ford, I think, um, I, they said, well, we'll stick you in a Cobra type of thing. And there were three cars entered by Carroll Shelby and the light blue colors are so proper Shelby Cobras. And um, after the first qualifying, one of the cars had a major accident. I mean, like it was, well, I don't know if the driver must have been injured, I would have thought, but I, I thought actually died, but apparently didn't. Um, and then the second qualifying, there were two, uh, another car went off flight. I mean, massive accident again. And uh, just before the race, um, Carol Shelby came to me because I was driving with Joe Slesser, And he said, he, he came up to me and he said, please just finish the race. <laughs> he'd, he'd had enough, you know, and uh, he probably wanted to pull the car actually, but um, we did and um, we won the class, which is really what he wanted and Joe and I I think we drove it as well as we could with what we'd got and uh, I'm talking about the old Nürburgring now not not the sanitized one we've got now and I remember the car taking off 30 times a lap I mean it was a bucking Bronco it was horrendous and uh, a baptism of fire really for my well it was my second race there but uh, it was extremely difficult, and uh, I thought we'd finished twenty something. But I was—I uh, was with uh, Ian Titchmarsh. He t- told me we came sixth. I had no idea we'd finish sixth. I don't know. You shared—you
1: shared quite a lot with Joe Schlesser, didn't you? What sort of—what was he like, Joe? I mean, oh,
2: Joe was a lovely guy and uh, French, and I could speak French because I was at school in, in uh, Switzerland for a while, but. Uh, i was um I really because most of the racing in certainly when we got to Formula Two and Formula One and sports cars were were in France because they had all the great circuits La Rouen was another fantastic track, hugely dangerous, but what a challenge down that hill there was uh, was just you know f- Fangio, you could just picture it can 't you and and all the cars were on the move there you know if you 're going reasonably the car's going and um you know that so i and uh, there was one period in uh must have been maybe 64 65. I've lived in France for about three months uh because there was no point going home because the next race was down down the road sort of thing and with Reims you know Reims seemed a very simple straightforward triangle but there were there were a couple of bits there, which were really, there was one corner after that, not the one after the pits, so the one after that, which was a rising turn where the car goes a little bit light, and it wasn't flat, uh, in, a, in a junior or a Formula 2 car. <coughs> so there, were, and there was a there were great challenge there, and there was one going down to the far hairpin, where there's another curve up to that, a
3: little left-hand curve. Um, Actually Richard, can I stop you there one second because something that's always fascinated me about Reims was that the 12-hour sports car race started at midnight. I think it was 11 o'clock. Oh, well, well, yes, sure, I'm sure you're right, but I I just thought it was, it was, it it was, (laughs) it was quick as hell, that circuit, and I just thought the idea of, of, of starting, running across the road, leaping in the car, and starting at night, and particularly, if, you know, if, I know it was normally decent weather, but...
2: Yes, I don't... I, I, that,
3: surely that must have been... The first few minutes of that race, in terms of sort of settling in and everything, must surely have been unusually difficult.
2: But you've, but you've got to get on with it, you know. I mean, that's your job, and you know you're going to do it. It's rather like if you're going on a long journey and you've got to do 480 miles in a day, but not on straight roads. And, and somehow you just get through it, and you do it, don't you? And so that's, it's a mental preparation, I suppose, um <clears throat> and i drove uh, david's lm there with him uh, the one year with lucy and bianchi and uh, i was started the race and uh, we were we were first off but we w- didn't come past the pits first because all the cars had gone <laughs> by then. But you know, uh, it was uh, everything was a challenge, you know, to a driver. And so you know, the first thing you've got to start first. You've got to get out, and so we did. And it just happened that the engine fired just at the right moment, and that second the clutch was coming up, and boom, you've gone. You know, the door slammed shut anyway. And um, but the, uh, the f- I'm not sure. Yes, I think the GT40 was before that, wasn't it? Uh, in '64. And um, they, the cars looked immaculate. They were beautifully prepared, but they had the Indy engine, which was 4.2, which was, a, it, it didn't take torque reversals very kindly. And they, they but it, th- I think the cars broke for other reasons too. But um, just the signaling pits were where the pits are. And our signaling pit was sort of towards that right-hand curve, which was, I think, I'm sure it was flat in a in GT40. And every time I got a signal, um uh, from the pits i acknowledge it with a little donk on the indicator on the right hand indicator and uh jim clark was watching the race he wasn't in it and he said uh i <laughs> quite funny she said um h- how can you manage to do that and this is from jim clark you know can do anything and i said well it's just easy and the controls were perfectly to hand and I just said, well, it's just a, you know the lads are in the pits; they've got a lousy job. You know, they've got to be there for twelve hours. So give them, give them some acknowledgement. But he was quite impressed with that. Yeah,
1: so I, I don't it. think
2: anybody else did. It.
1: Actually, uh, can I just ask you quickly? Because what, what was the, what was the reaction from in, in your family background to you making a living as a racing driver in in in, in often very dangerous situations? I mean, first of all. Did you make it? Was did you make a living out of it? You did, didn't yeah. you?
2: Uh, not to start with. If I hadn't had a father who owned garages, no. and so the first cars came out of the garage, which effectively didn't cost him anything, to be honest. Um, it it subsequently might have done, but he in those days you could things against uh, publicity or whatever so actually it didn't cost him so without that sort of background I I probably wouldn't have done anything at all and he was actually keener for me to do it than I was and he was more pushy than I was a bit like sort of modern fathers with their car singers but he didn't actually come to the races but he provided me with the wherewithal to do whatever I was going to do and I started with a little standard 10 um, uh, I did one or two races, and that, that's all. And then in my first real year was uh, '60, 1960, with the TR3A, which was uh, basically a brand new car, nothing done to it other than a TR3A. And um, but I I couldn't match the people who got fiberglass panels and camshafts and yeah. Weber carburetors and all that sort of thing. Same old story, isn't it? <laughs> well, yes. And so that the end of that year, just to give you an idea, the end of that year. Um, I said to my father, I right, I want to start doing what these other guys are doing because my average finishing spot was about fourth. And I couldn't have won, although I, I won a handicap, not a handicap, I did win a handicap race, but I won a scratch race at Alton because it was in the wet. But um, I couldn't really win sensibly. So I wanted to modify the cart to go back next year. And he said, oh, he says, you don't want to bother with that. He said, we'll get you one of these Formula Juniors. Well, I didn't even know, I had no idea what a Formula Junior was. That's how backward I was in going forwards. So so he was the push and that started my three years in juniors. At the the end of which then yes I started to be attracted to other people through the Greywood Award and BRM. So from then on 64 was professional. Mm.
1: One of the problems with having someone like Richard Atwood on this uh, podcast is there's so much to talk about that we've been jumping all over the place but i don't see how to avoid that because i think that after 45 minutes we've probably covered a tenth of the man's career which is a bit worrying really but no, it's, a, uh, it's
2: only 10 years
1: <laughs> well yeah I know but 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 you you did do you did, maybe you should read the book but you did do an awful lot. Um but we can't we can't uh, we can't uh, we've got some readers questions to ask you Richard in just a moment but w- we must ask you about the goodwood revival because here you are aged whatever <laughs> Uh, winning races at Goodwood in that wonderful BRM. I mean, why do you do it? What, what, why do you keep doing this?
2: Well, it's, um, I, I suppose I always thought that if you have a talent, you might as well use it. And I didn't know I'd got any talent at all. I mean, at school, I was pretty hopeless at pretty much everything because I didn't enjoy it. And I went to five schools, which didn't help. Um, but uh, w- when you do discover something, then you might as well you, take advantage of that. And I think that's the same with anybody who's got a, got a bent for talent, whether it's painting or any sport or whatever else, yeah, it should be encouraged. Um, uh, but uh, we know that's, that's how it, uh, it started and that's how it went on. But I, the reason I stopped was um, because it was the end of the five-litre sports car formula. Um, and I thought it was gonna be more difficult to get a drive uh, for the following year. I had decided already that I was gonna retire anyway because I'd just got married and I wanted to have kids. I, so I, I thought in a responsible way. There are a lot of other reasons. And I also promised my father that I would go back and help him run the business. So there are many reasons why why I did retire. But, but why did I carry on? I didn't do anything for about 10 years when I joined the business. I concentrated on that. I really immersed myself in it. And I really enjoyed it, actually. It was a different discipline altogether, of course. And uh, then a friend of mine, Michael Ostromov bought a, a a 330p Ferrari, and uh, he didn't have a driver for it. He said, well, "Would you drive?" And I said, "Believe what do I want to drive <laughs> that <for?" laughs> And really, it it started from there, and um, and I sort of got back in a car and I hadn't been there for mm-hmm. ten years, and um, found I quite enjoyed it again. And I, on and off, I've done stuff from there on in, really. But um, the, but the BRM is now not allowed at uh, Goodwood because it's, a, it's still a Tasman spec, and it's a hundred thousand pounds to change the engine, and, and he and I won't, won't do that. So it is—it's for sale basically, and, and someone will shame. have to put a—you know—buy a you know, better buy buy engine for it's it. It's a shame because it, it is. Yeah, but out. it's the end of an era, so that's the end of that. <laughs>
1: well, I, I just think I could—I st- could stand there all day watching you go around in oh, there. It's such a lovely car, and and there we are okay <clears throat> um, some readers questions now from the first one comes from Russell Bruce, and Russell says the Porsche 917 we're back to that received a lot of development during its career do you think Richard that the Ford P68 would have had the potential to be a great car given as much
2: development <coughs> yes I, I, I drove I it in period and um, every race that car was entered for it either was on pole it uh, led the race or it made fastest race lap. So the potential was there and it was underdeveloped, developed, um, but it didn't need a lot doing to it. Um, at the time, Sid Taylor with Denny Helm with the Lola 270 was, was the benchmark really. And I did one of the races I did in 68 was at Alton Park. And we were easily on pole by a second and uh, the car lasted only 10 laps, at the end of which we were mm-hmm. 10 seconds in the lead. So it was not difficult. Uh, so the potential and the performance of that car was fantastic. Again, DFV <laughs> uh, made a massive difference because it was light and it was in the right place and it just had the, the right characteristics for a race car. So, and it was the first car, of course, to have the uh, a sports car, to have that engine in it. So it it had huge advantages uh, over uh, other sports cars because of the engine package, and the gearbox was very light too. But uh, y- yes, uh, in uh, going further on, I drove I used to drive the nine one seven with David Piper's uh, races in the eighties, and uh, I th- the the F three L was was quicker than the nine one seven around Silverstone uh, Grand Prix track. Um, in the late eighties, it was just a smaller package and yeah. a more manageable car. I think um, aerodynamically, it was uh, not uh, nothing like as bad as the um, the nine one seven in its initial stages. But I mean, Frank Gardner's not the bravest of fellows. He's not. It uh, he wasn't. And at Spa, he he, he drove the F three L there. And, um, you know, he, he was uh, on pole by four or five seconds or something like that. And we're talking about the next guy on the grid was Jackie Eakes. Now, you won't, a Belgian at his home track in a GT40. So that gives you a very another yeah, fantastic yeah. idea, the performance of that car.
3: Actually, I, I'm interested in that actually, Richard, because the at the time, I mean, you know, there I was, I was just a fan going to races, but I remember there was a lot of writing in Autosport and so on, as if the car had a sort of slightly spooky reputation, and I I think possibly that was, you know, after Irwin's accident at the ring but I'm um, the way you, you talk about it is interesting because you you make it sound relatively benign
2: oh I, I like the car um, I, I liked any car that gave an advantage and that one certainly did and wherever I wherever we drove it it, it was right up there and um, uh, but at, uh, the first race it did I think was Brands Hatch and um uh, Alan Mann was trying to get uh Jim Clark and Graham to drive it I think and he was t- he talked to colin chapman about it and colin said oh, yeah maybe maybe all anyway apparently colin was never going to allow that to happen and so at the last minute they were scratching around but for name drivers not me and they got bruce mclaren i think and mike spence and there was another car with brabham was it i can't remember don't remember the other car danny helm was one yeah, that's right. um but uh so yeah i mean the car was good it was quick and mm. that was racing i was a quick car and mm. that was a quick car it
3: was a gorgeous looking thing too yeah wasn't it? probably it really the best was. looking car yeah. ever a lot of people say yeah. that. Yeah.
2: and you look at the sills; it was all sort of shaped mm. it was beautiful mm. mm. Len bailey design mm. gonna
1: have to rush us along a bit <laughs> no no it's okay We have to rush along a bit because we've we're we're up to an hour which sort of our allotted time but well, it's fine this I'm question back. comes from Pascal Eakes, famous name, who says that he saw you drive in the Targa Florio in 69 and he wondered um, if you could tell us a little bit about that.
2: Um, well, the Targa Florio was um, a very special race. It was The track, the, the circuit was uh, 44 or 45 miles around. Um, and uh, as the uh, Targa was... uh, mentioned a Porsche at the start of the year and uh, I said but to Porsche I've never done a Targa I said you know maybe you should um, find a driver who knows the Targa (laughs) be more sensible to that and uh, I was told and I can't remember who it was uh, it was a German (laughs) he said Herr Atwood you will learn the Targa (laughs) Florio so I thought hmm okay I'm going to be doing it then <laughs> and um, we were sent down there Brian myself Brian had never done it either and we were sent down in a couple of 911 R's which are very rare car be great to have one of those there are only 12 made and um, so we drove from Stuttgart all the way down to um, Naples across to Palermo so we had 10 days to learn the circuit that included getting there and back so the first day we're getting there And uh, these cars are very short um, geared because they're race cars. And we could do only about 105 miles an hour on the motorway, auto auto routes, auto stradas. And um, I just can imagine so many people must have gone past our car (laughs) and they're thinking, why isn't that, not us, but that guy, why doesn't he change into another gear? (laughs) Well, there wasn't another gear but um to actually learn the track was was our first task in february and um we ultimately learned it that's another story which i won't go into now but if you maybe another time it, <laughs> another time and uh, we learned it and we hand on heart before the race we knew every corner we did 945 miles unbelievable i didn't believe <laughs> it myself but we did and then we go for the race and we have a muletto the 908 which everybody can drive them to practice and uh, the first thing I discover is that we've My brain has learnt the circuit at a certain rate and that rate is in the 911 R But with the 908 was get in the corner so much faster My brain hasn't my knowledge is not coming out <laughs> fast enough. And I, there was a series of, um, of uh, a right, uh, Sorry a, a left right, left right, and another left right, all together, and the last one goes on to a bit of a straight, so the last one you've got to get faster than the other ones to come out of the corner and I mistook this for the, for the middle one, and of course we've got another left right to go, and I last second realised it, and well it was very very close to me going completely off the road and my heart went boom, 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 for a long, long time after that and I calmed down. But um, it, that, that was an interesting factor. But the Targa, it, I really enjoyed the Targa. It was a race that um, not many people got injured there because it was so slow. But on the seafront coming back from Campo Felici, it's flat out, you know, and, um, and the, some of those corners are really fast and uh, uncertain. But um, yeah. Great. so there was, a, there was a danger to that on the straight bit, really. But the rest of it, I loved it. I loved it because of course, short corners and uh, precision again. And the surface was so polished because the roads had not yeah. been redone for years. So it was, it was like driving on, um, uh, well, more than a wet road. A lot of the time, polished stone, it was fantastic. I loved it. You know, the cars were sliding from one corner yeah. to the other.
1: Right. Okay, well, I wish I'd seen it. I never went to the Um <clears throat> Time for one more question, I think. Um, it comes from Mario Carnero Neto. It's a name to conjure with, isn't it? Um, Richard, your favourite race, uh, briefly. Do you have one? If not, we'll move on.
2: Well, I I thought I drove some quite good races, and um, but some of them, a lot of them, I didn't have a result. Yeah. Um, and so... Which is very sad really yeah. in a way um, But I suppose everybody will remember the the Monte Carlo one and, and I would have thought that I'd done as much as I could with what I'd got um, And I was a bit disappointed I suppose when I drove the the DF the, the latest 49 next year to find that actually it wasn't really good enough um I, I don't know if I've got a favorite race. I, I really I, I there was one race at um, Rouen actually which was a circuit I love because of that uh, downhill section and all the other bits as well coming back up the valley And uh, it was a formula 2 race. I think it was a formula 2 race it was and um Just before the race on the grid Um my guy my mechanic harry curzon came up to you M- mrp lola and he came up to me and he said just for just just gonna start the race you know just going off the grid he says he's I'll, I'll put a nice new set of plugs in for it. plugs plugs in for you
3: <laughs>
2: and i well i won't repeat in the microphone what i was screened to myself in my helmet you absolute because you never changed anything from the end of qualifying to the race still the same today i'm sure it should be the same and one of them, of course, was faulty. Mm-hmm. So you had to make a stop, change all the plugs. I, f- I think I f- still finished second, but it was a race that would have been easier to win.
1: I think, I think it's got to be said, hasn't it, that the history book should be saying that you won a hell of a lot more races than you did. I mean, it's pretty obvious to say that, but uh, you've obviously got got... That squared away in your mind I guess now looking back on it all well um, enough
2: I Well, (laughs) there were things maybe Should have changed but I always reckoned that if I I was basically on my own my father wasn't there in the early days and I was always on my own I didn't have a manager I did it all myself and it to have had a manager who was good Would have could have made a big difference to me Uh, But I but the, the two managers I Thought out of the top of my head that I would have desired or, or had as a very desirable asset, uh, one would have been to be taken under the wing of either Colin Chapman or Ken Terrell. Mm. And uh, I yeah. just never had that advantage. That's uh, but you look back at the Formula Junior grid of 1963, all through that year, and uh, amongst them, you've got world champions, you've got British touring car champions, you've got sport car champions, you've got all the guys who went on to, f- you know great futures from Junior and it was a fantastic formula and it's still a fantastic formula. If only they will stop trying to get uh, more out of the engines because that's just going to put the cost up but Junior's is still a fabulous package.
1: Great. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that. I did. <laughs> and okay, I know Nigel did. And it looks like, looks to me like Ed did as well. Uh, Ed's thinking, when was 1960? <laughs> he's, a young, <laughs> he's, look- a yeah, he's a young man. He's a young man. Thanks, Rob. That's all right. No, 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 it's all good. Um, well, thank you so much, Richard Atwood. It's been absolutely riveting one hour. It seems like five minutes ago we started, actually. Um, and I'm going to put you on the spot now. I'm going to say will you please come back towards the end of the year because I think that we haven't we haven't touched on David Piper all those wonderful races we haven't talked about Steve McQueen at Lamar. there's so much we haven't talked about
2: yeah it was I had a well relatively short career but it was compressed and uh, we did all the races we could um, some of those races at Kyanami they did with David was uh, Army, another fabulous <laughs> oh, yeah. track
3: destroyed but the thing is also just been there was so much variety. That's that's yeah, the thing yeah, and that, which is gone been. now. Mm. And that's You're right. Yeah, I the mean era Brian says the same thing. He said in yeah. so many ways we were so lucky. The era was great but hugely dangerous.
1: Yeah, sure. Actually it's it's a good it's in a it's a sad but good point to end on because we're we're broadcasting this in the week of the memorial service for Sid Watkins. Mm um i mean as we speak it's tomorrow but probably be today but let's not get into that because <laughs> anyway it's this week and of course a man who did more than probably well not probably more than anybody to make uh, racing as safe as it is today and so, jackie's job and jackie's too yeah thank you very much everybody and perhaps we'll all spend a minute or two tomorrow thinking about sid watkins um who did so much for the sport that we all love Uh, And we'll see you next time on the Motorsport Magazine podcast. Bye-bye.